We're going to pick up this morning at chapter 15, verse 36. And we'll read through to chapter 16, verse 10. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 1111. Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 36. The section we're going to read begins with the words, sometime later. That means sometime after the big church meeting that was described at the beginning of chapter 15, and also after the letter from the church leaders had been brought back to the church in Antioch. So then, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is God's word. And this passage divides pretty clearly into three sections. The sections deal with disagreement, with an issue of flexibility, and with God's guidance. And in each of these, we're being shown the importance of active service and right motivation. We're being shown that serving matters and right motivation matters. And we're going to look at it this way. When we are serving God for the good of his people and the spread of his word, three things happen according to this passage. First, Even our disagreements can lead to progress. 
The first thing to notice here is that Paul and Barnabas are both actively engaged in serving God. We'll get to their disagreement in a moment. But first, let's be clear, these are not two armchair theologians who do nothing while arguing about how everyone else should be doing it. These two men have been actively ministering for years. And the second thing to notice is their motivation. In verse 36, Paul says to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they're doing. Paul is referring back to the cities they visited on their first missionary journey. That journey was recorded in chapters 13 and 14. And while there was a good response in the cities they visited, there was also plenty of negative and, in fact, violent response. For example, in Lystra, Paul's opponents stoned him and left him for dead. And now Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back to those places. Let's see how those who accepted the gospel are doing. And it's clear Barnabas is equally keen for a second missionary journey. These two men are active in serving God and their motivation is right. They're going back for the good of God's people. They personally have nothing to gain from this except maybe a worse beating than the one they got the first time. That's the context in which this disagreement occurs. And the detail is explained for us in verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. The background to this is that when Paul and Barnabas began their first missionary journey, they took John Mark along with them as a kind of missionary apprentice or a ministry apprentice. Chapter 13 told us he was with them as their helper, but he bailed out. He let them down. Fairly early on in the journey, he left them and he went back to Jerusalem. At the time, that's all we were told. But here it's clear that he had no good reason to leave the expedition. Verse 38 says John Mark had deserted Paul and Barnabas. And in fact, he left them even before things started to get tough. The violence against Paul and Barnabas came after John Mark had already left them. So then, when they begin to plan the second journey... And when Barnabas suggests taking John Mark again, it's probably understandable that Paul is not up for it. Verse 38 says Paul did not think it wise to take him. Paul's thinking is, we were counting on him last time, and he left us even before it got tough. The chances are high that he'll do that again. Yes, no doubt he's a nice guy, but he's not dependable. And he left us short of help. We can probably see Paul's point. But equally, we can probably see why Barnabas wants to try again with John Mark. For one thing, John Mark is his cousin. 
So there is a bit of family loyalty here. But it's not just that. When Barnabas was introduced to us back in chapter 4, we learned that Barnabas wasn't his real name. It was a nickname the apostles gave him. It means son of encouragement or the encourager. That was his great character trait. And that's what we see in play again here. Paul can see the dangers of taking someone into the danger zone when their commitment is seriously in doubt. But Barnabas is reluctant to give up on his cousin. Maybe we could accuse Paul of being too harsh. But equally, maybe we could accuse Barnabas of being too lenient. The mission could suffer if they take John Mark with them. But the significant point to notice is that this disagreement hinges on a finely balanced judgment call about John Mark's character. This is not a disagreement about doctrine. It's not about the authority of God's Word. It's not a matter of obedience or disobedience to God's Word. It's about what is wisest with regard to planning the trip. Why is it important to notice that? It's important because when we say even our disagreements can lead to progress, we mustn't think, oh, so it doesn't matter what we believe. We can disagree, for example, about who Jesus was and still achieve things for God. Is that what we mean? No, Paul and Barnabas were agreed on the truth. And they had the same motivation as well. This is not a clash of two big egos. It's not about whose name comes on the top of the bill. Both of these men want to strengthen God's people, to build Christ's church. And surely that's why the ultimate result of all of this is progress for the church. Verse 39 says, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Luke never tries to paint a flawless picture of the early church. He is open about the fact that these people were not perfect. And there is nothing commendable about two brothers in Christ having a sharp disagreement. In fact, it could be translated as a fierce argument. There's nothing commendable about parting ways like that. But, because ultimately their motivation was right, even their argument leads to progress. Instead of one team of gospel workers leaving from Antioch, two teams go out. And another brother, Silas, was drawn into the work of the ministry. And Paul and Barnabas did not go out and try to tear each other down. They both get on with serving God for the good of his people and the spread of his word. When God's servants are like that, then even their disagreements can result in progress. There is a little detail that's worth noticing here. Barnabas does take John Mark, 
but he does not take him back into the danger zone. Verse 39 says he takes him to Cyprus. That just happens to be where Barnabas is from. He knows the area. And there was no trouble when Paul and Barnabas went there before. So it seems that at least in part, Barnabas has listened to Paul. He wants to encourage John Mark along in ministry, but he takes him to a safe place in order to do it. Meanwhile, Paul and Silas head back to the danger zone of Syria and Cilicia. So I think there's been a certain amount of compromise here. Paul focuses on strengthening the churches, while Barnabas focuses on strengthening John Mark. And history shows that for his part, Paul was happy to be proved wrong about John Mark. The passage we're going to look at tonight in Colossians, that passage will show that John Mark eventually became one of Paul's faithful co-workers. And so in his second letter to Timothy, we find Paul asking Timothy to bring John Mark to him because, Paul says, he is helpful to me in my ministry. And John Mark is traditionally accepted as the author of Mark's gospel in the New Testament. Reading through the New Testament shows us that disagreements are almost inevitable in the church. And some of them are destructive. But others, even though they're unpleasant, don't seem to hinder the work. What is it that makes the difference? I think the difference is motivation. When the root of our disagreement is personal pride, when we're fighting for our ego, or for position, or for revenge, then the work will be hindered. Or when the truth is being attacked from within the church, that kind of disagreement hinders the work too. Energy that could go to build the church gets used up trying to defend the church from false teaching. But when brothers and sisters who love the Lord and love his people and who are giving themselves to serve the Lord and his people, when those kind of people disagree over the wisest way forward and when they're willing to listen to one another and willing even to be proven wrong, then there can still be progress. So as we think about this specific situation, I think it's appropriate to ask God to make us the kind of people who, if we disagree, disagree not from our armchairs, but while we are actively serving God and with a genuine heart for the good of God's people and the spread of his word. Then second, When we are serving God for the good of his people and the spread of his word, we will develop the right kind of flexibility. Whenever these two missionary teams leave, this is what happens. Silas and John Mark go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas go this way. And they arrive at Lystra. You may remember that's where Paul was almost stoned to death. 
But this time he gets to know a disciple named Timothy. And the reason Paul gets to know him is because, verse 2 says, the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Timothy has a good reputation. And not only in his own church, but in other local churches too. And so, in verse 3, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. He wants to take him as a new ministry apprentice. But there's a difficulty. Verse 1 has explained that Timothy's mother was a Jewess and a believer, but his father was a Greek. And we might ask, well, why is that a difficulty? Well, it seems that if you had a Jewish mother, you were counted as a Jew. But because he had a non-Jewish father, Timothy had not been circumcised. So he was officially a Jew, but he was a Jew who was not complying with the Jewish law. Other Jews would have viewed him as a disobedient Jew. I'm not sure how they would have known he wasn't circumcised. Maybe the simple fact that his father was a Greek would have made it obvious. Maybe Greek fathers made a point of ignoring Jewish customs. In any case, Paul knows that the Jews know. Timothy is not circumcised. So in verse 3, he circumcised him because of, or out of consideration for, the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And at this point, we have to ask, why is Paul doing this? In fact, if we remember back to what happened in chapter 15, we might ask, isn't Paul undermining the major decision that was taken in chapter 15? You might remember that some Jewish Christians had been teaching that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. In response to that, there was a major church meeting in Jerusalem. And the church agreed that Jews and Gentiles are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. We are saved by God's grace alone. Not by God's grace plus our own work. Circumcision is not necessary for salvation. So as Paul goes about evangelizing here, why on earth does he circumcise his new ministry apprentice? Well, the answer is that Paul fully supported the truth that salvation is by God's grace alone. In one of his letters, he writes, circumcision is nothing. Paul knew it didn't earn any points with God. But he knew that circumcising Timothy would remove an obstacle with his Jewish audience. In fact, he circumcises Timothy so that circumcision won't become an issue. He knows that if he starts preaching to Jews about Jesus, and they know that his co-worker is an uncircumcised Jew, they're not going to be listening to Paul's preaching. They're going to be offended that Paul cares so little about their heritage. They'll probably start debating with Paul about why he's so happy to throw away Jewish customs. Paul doesn't want that. He wants the focus to be on the good news about Jesus. Not on something so unimportant as circumcision. 
So he does what is necessary to take circumcision out of the equation. He makes sure that Timothy is circumcised. John Stott sums it up like this. Paul knew that what was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. What was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance by some human beings. I'm sure none of us are interested really in circumcision. But we should be very interested in Paul's approach here. Circumcision was the specific issue and it has no relevance to us. But Paul's principle is completely relevant. If we treasure the good news about Jesus, if we believe it's what the world needs, then we will develop the right kind of flexibility. In other words, we will learn to be inflexible in order to protect the truth of the gospel. We will learn when it's time to be inflexible. And we will learn when it's time to be flexible in order to remove obstacles to the gospel. So in Paul's case, when certain teachers said, you can't be saved without circumcision, Paul said, rubbish. He was inflexible. His message was, circumcision is nothing. It is by God's grace you are saved through faith in Christ. On the other hand, when Paul was taking the gospel to conservative Jews, he was flexible. He made sure his team were all acceptable to conservative Jews. And then having shown respect for their culture, he gave them his message. It is by God's grace you are saved through faith in Christ. How might this apply to our situation? Well, it means that as a church, we must be inflexible on what the Bible says and flexible in everything else. No doubt there are traditions and ways of doing things that many of us hold very dear. We're comfortable with them and we are uncomfortable without them. But maybe some of them are a barrier to people listening to the good news. A simple example would be the name of our church. We are Pelsall Evangelical Church. Now to you and me, that may mean that we love God and we love his word. To our minds, the word evangelical distinguishes us from liberal churches who don't believe the Bible. But that is almost certainly not what it means to the average person who walks past our church. Increasingly, when people hear the word evangelical, they're likely to think we're the Christian equivalent of the Taliban. Now that's not correct, and that's not our fault. It's just the way the media uses the word evangelical at the moment. And it doesn't help when loony pastors in America always seem to call themselves evangelical. There are lots of good pastors in America too. but I'm not saying we should change the name of our church. I'm saying it might be an example of the right kind of flexibility. 
flexibility that's motivated not by a desire to compromise the truth, but a desire to remove hindrances to people hearing the truth. Now, of course, that kind of flexibility does not guarantee people are going to receive our message. When Paul circumcised Timothy, there were no guarantees the Jews would turn to Christ. But it did make it more likely they would listen to the message about Christ. I realize this whole topic of flexibility is a huge issue. Some of you might say it's a huge can of worms. And it makes me uncomfortable too. But it is important. And our greatest chance of getting it right is by loving God and His Word more than we love our own comfort and our set ways of doing things. I don't think we'll go far wrong if we love God and His Word more than those other things. Third, when we are serving God for the good of His people and the spread of His Word, He will guide us. If the previous verses unsettle us, these next verses should give us great hope and comfort. We will disagree. We will struggle to know when to be flexible and when not to be. But we can have unshakable confidence that our God is at work. And when we are serving God for the good of his people and the spread of his word, then he will guide us in these things. Look how this plays out in Paul's situation. Verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You'll notice that in verse 10, the word we suddenly appears. It seems that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, joined Paul and his team around this time. And we need our map if we're going to understand what happens here. There's the arrow showing the route that Paul and his team took as far as Lystra. Then from Lystra, they try to go this way to preach the word. But we're told the Holy Spirit kept them from doing that. So then they tried to go this way. But we're told the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. Now there's no explanation of how the Spirit prevented them. What is clear is that they were intent on serving God. But two of the main roads were closed to them. And so they take the only obvious main road that's left, this way. And as they go that way, God confirms it's the right way. 
He does that by sending the vision of the man from Macedonia, which is up here, calling them to come to Macedonia. Commentators have pointed out that here God leads these men by a process of double guidance. In other words, one of the ways he guides them is to close certain options in their face. No, don't go that way. And don't go that way either. And then he also guides them positively. Do go this way. And remember again the context in which God's guidance comes. These believers are not sitting on their couches in Jerusalem saying, God guide us. They are getting on with ministry. They're not sitting around doing nothing. And their motivation is right. Their aim, we're told, is to preach the word. And in that context, God leads them forward through this process of double guidance, shutting some roads and opening others. Now, of course, when those options were closing in front of them, it's unlikely Paul and his team were very happy about it. They were probably frustrated and confused. We're trying to move forward, but it's always negative. It's only later when the positive guidance finally comes that they can see the purpose of all the negatives. I think this is very helpful for us, both as individuals and as a church. First of all, we can't expect God to guide us unless we are willing and active servants with the right motivation. And secondly, when he does guide us, he may use plenty of negatives before he uses a positive. He may bring lots of our good ideas and good efforts to nothing in order to narrow down our options and then give us the positive guidance. And as a church, we may feel that we have run into some negatives lately. And you may feel that as an individual in your own life. The message of these verses is that the negatives might not feel good, but God uses them to guide us. So let's make sure that each of us is serving him in whatever way we can. Let's make sure our motivations are right. And let's trust that God will bring along the positive guidance. And let's take the opportunity to express our trust in God as we sing together, by faith we see the hand of God.